And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of life you've given to us. We pray that you would help us to understand and apply them to our lives. Lord, that we might give you the praise and glory and do that for which you have created us. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so eschatology is the study of last things or things to come. And when we refer to biblical eschatology, we're talking about that very thing, whether it was the prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Christ or those prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament that refer to the second coming of Christ. And uh, some Christians might be a little hesitant to study biblical eschatology. And I can understand that because uh, there have been times where men... Christian teachers or those who would claim to be Christian teachers have set dates for the return of Christ only to be let down and to let down others. And then there are some cults that focus only on eschatology and of course they get it wrong. And you can just ask family members of those who suffered under the so-called ministry of Jim Jones, I think it was in the 70s. And so there is a, a hesitancy there for those reasons to study biblical eschatology. Uh, maybe some think about the finer points of theology. You know, am I amill? Am I postmillennial? Or am I panmillennial? It's all going to pan out, you see. And this morning, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about big picture eschatology. When I ask the question, is it important? I mean, those other facets are important. But when we talk about the big picture eschatology, I'm talking about now the second uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his physical bodily return, uh, the resurrection of the dead, the day of judgment, the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state which is to come. We know of its certainty because it's taught in scripture, the same apostle who wrote this letter to the Christians at Rome said in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 that there is a day coming at which time God will judge all men in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And he has given testimony of this by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is assurance that all men will stand before him at the day of judgment. And so when we think about things to come, and it's especially the day, the question is, well, how should that affect our present-day life? Eschatology is important, and when you think about the Day of Judgment, obviously, obviously then it is important, and how should that bear on our present life? Well, the text here before us deals with that. It answers that question, and basically, I've divided it into three sections. There are basically three directives for the Christian in light of eternity to come. 
Remember, we're in space and time, part of God's created order. And one day, we will be in eternity. And that day is coming. So how should we live in light of that? Well, the first thing is we must know the times. In our text here, Paul says in verse 11, and do this, I think he's referring not only to what we saw last time, verses 8 through 10, not only before that, verses 1 through 7, but also beginning at verse 12, living light of the mercies of God, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Do this, live in this way, knowing the time. And he uses the word singular, the word time there in the singular. I'm saying times because I know what else the apostle has taught in Scripture. I know what the Bible teaches elsewhere in Scripture concerning the times, the various epochs of time, we could say. And uh, what we have here then is, is further motivation for living the Christian life in light of these things and do this knowing the time. Do these things in light of the time. And he says there that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Now, what does he mean when he says high time? It's high time. It's borderline overdue. And he says to awake out of sleep. He's writing to the saints who are at Rome. And so I think the idea is that Paul, he's preached the gospel to them in this letter. He's heard about their Christian witness and testimony from others. Someone else has preached the gospel to them physically in person. Uh, but Paul has heard about them. and He's saying, look, um, you haven't quite um, produced the Christian life that you ought. And so now is the time to do it. And here's why. And so he goes on, and so we have this motivation here. Let me just talk a little bit about the times that the Scriptures present to us concerning that which is to come. Basically, there are two ages according to Scripture. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul there talks about this present age and the age to come. The age to come will be, as we'll see, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. In Galatians 1.4, Paul calls this present age the present evil age because this present age consists of men, this side of eternity, and it's full of evil, men, women, and children. And there is evil in it. And so there is this present evil age. There is the age to come. Again, referring to Ephesians 1.21, well, what is that? In 2 Peter uh, that apostle talks about an age to come, and here's what he says in Second Peter chapter 3, at verse 13. He says, nevertheless, we look according to his promise. We look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there will be a new heavens and new earth one day, and he talks about how that comes to be through fire and the refining of this heavens and earth that is already in existence so there is the present evil age the age to come that age that even revelation talks about in chapter 21 where heaven comes down and descends upon the earth that glorious event there and so when we talk about the two ages when we talk about biblical prophecy maybe you've wondered are we living 
in the last days. I mean, there's all this talk. There has been for years, decades now, about the last days in the end times. Well, I would say yes. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 1 says. It's Hebrews 1, beginning of verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in what? These last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. God spoke through his son in these last days. So yes, we're in the end times, biblically speaking, and have been since the first advent of Jesus Christ to this earth. And so then, when is the terminus? When is the end of this present evil age? We need to understand that. When will the end of time come? Well, it will come at the second coming. Let me read to you Acts chapter 1, uh, what is said there at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. At Acts 1 and verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, Jesus, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so there we're told about the second coming of Christ. He will come physically, bodily, down from heaven again to this earth. So hold your finger there in Romans 13 and turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, this is, uh, this is called often the Olivet Discourse because it was on that mountain where Jesus gave uh, this teaching, this discourse. And in Matthew 24, in the first 34 verses, he talks about an event that has already happened, which may come as a surprise to you. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, and beginning at verse uh, 35 or 36, he begins to talk about the second coming because they were asking, when shall all these things be? And Jesus talks about this certain event, but then he talks about of that day and hour. And that's there at verse 36. And so when will this happen? Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. But if you look at Matthew 25, he continues his discourse and in verses 31 through 36, um, he talks about, again, the second coming. He says, when the Son of Man, this is Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was sick and naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And so here he talks about the second coming. 
the judgment, the separation of the sheep from the goat, and the consummation of the kingdom of God. And so again, I ask the question, when will that happen? When will Christ return bodily for the second time to this earth? Well, he tells us in one sense in Matthew 24, beginning of verse 36 now, Matthew 24, at verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour, the end of this world, the second coming, he says, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So why do men try to figure out the physical, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, no man, not even the angels know, only the Father knows. But he says in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What's his point? Obviously no man knows. And men will carry on about their daily lives as they always have. Noah preached. Noah preached that message of righteousness and judgment. There's going to be judgment to come. He built the ark. They laughed at him. Made fun of him. And yet they carried on, they ate, they drank, they gave their sons and daughters in marriage. They didn't believe Noah's message. And then the rain fell. And of course, Noah and his family were in the ark. And so destruction came because they did not believe the preached message of Noah. Well, so it will be because men will not, some men will not believe the preached message of the gospel. They won't believe that the judgment is coming, but it's going to follow them out of nowhere. When Christ comes back at that day. And the ark, by the way, is symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ, who when we are in Christ, we are protected from the judgment to come. And so it will be in the days of Noah. And so 2 Peter 3.10 puts it this way, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up so no man knows just as a thief comes in the night so will the coming of Jesus be at that day now will Jesus's second return be at any moment that's a legitimate question in fact in our text back in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11 he says now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. What's he talking about? Well, salvation there, you have to understand. He's talked about salvation in this letter to the Romans. Justification, the forgiveness of sins we receive when we put our faith in Jesus, that happens at the very moment we believe. But that's not all of our salvation. There's sanctification. That's part of our salvation. Romans 8, 38, there's glorification, and that's part of our salvation that is yet to come. The resurrected body. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And so when Paul here says in verse 11, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, 
He's not necessarily talking about the second coming. He could be talking about our glorification and so forth. But if he is talking about the second coming, some have criticized this verse or the Bible because of this verse and others, other verses like it, saying that the apostles and the writers got it wrong. They're expecting Jesus to come back at any moment bodily, and it's been 2,000 years. But what do we say about that? Well, there are certain scriptures where it says that the coming of Christ is at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. But we must understand God's timetable as opposed to ours. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And so God, from his perspective, remember he's infinite, he's eternal. We are finite, we are not eternal. Um, remember from his perspective, one day is as a thousand I don't know about you, but every minute of the day can be long at times. Every hour of the day can be long, and every day turns into a decade finally, and it's like, wow. But James says our life is but a vapor. It's here for a moment, then it's gone. And so also the Bible does at times lump these things together, the first coming, the life of Christ, the second coming, the day of judgment. And we have to understand biblical prophecy and all these texts of scripture. And don't forget as we've seen in Revelation or Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about this national conversion of the Jewish people. And that yet has not happened. It's not yet happened. And so that is to come. And so there's more detail about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of those things in Revelation chapter 20 and other passages of scripture. My point is to say to you I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I am to live in light of his coming. Same is true for you as well. And so we must know the times. We must know what lies ahead on God's timetable, especially when it comes to the big picture events. And so he says in verse 12, uh, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. And so what's he talking about there? Well, remember in Scripture, night and darkness often are symbolic of sin and sorrow. Day and light are symbolic of righteousness, purity, happiness, and hope. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the prophet speaks of the first coming of Christ and how it is a glorious thing, a hopeful thing. And it says there in Isaiah 9-2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so at just the right time, the Lord Jesus would come, and he did come to accomplish our salvation. Jesus shone the light on this darkness and the shadow of death. Matthew 4, 16 says that Jesus is the one about whom Isaiah spoke in that passage. And right after that, it says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
And so that's what the message of Christ was. And so what is the point here in verse 12 of our text? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. I agree with Hodge. He says the time of sin and sorrow is nearly over. That of holiness and happiness is at hand. And so this is a message of hope here. When you think about God's timetable, and you look out into this world, and you see chaos, you see corruption, you see rebellion against the living and true God. And sometimes we are in the midst of that and, and affected by it, and succumb to the temptations, not only of Satan, ourselves, but even the world. Paul says the night is far spent, the day is at hand. It won't continue like this forever. So you can take hope. Maybe you're near the end of your life and you wonder what's going to happen to my children, my grandchildren, their grandchildren. Well, Paul says here, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. And if Jesus doesn't come back today or tomorrow or this century, death is assured. We will die. You will die. And if you're a Christian, death is the threshold into eternity, into heaven and eternal bliss very presence of God himself and so you look at the world maybe you're discouraged maybe you look at your own heart and you're discouraged there's my sin well it says here the night is far spent the day is at hand it won't be like this forever think about your Christian progress God is making progress he is faithful and will continue to do the work which he began Philippians 1 tells us And so why has God revealed these things to us? Why has God revealed eschatology and the things that are to come to us in his word? That's the question. Well, we see here that one reason he has done it is to give us hope. And also, as we see here, the second point is to improve our walk. Uh, the second response uh, to this teaching of eternity is to walk the walk. We talk about talking the talk. And walking the walk. If we walk the walk, that gives a legitimacy to talking the talk. That's true. But in verse 12, he says, Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness and lewdness and lust, not in envy or strife and envy. So let us walk properly. Let us walk decently. Again, there is the difference between night and day, between the darkness and the light. And in Scripture, it's unrighteousness and righteousness. It is sin and obedience. That's the difference. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, Paul points out that as Christians, we are sons of what? Light. We are children of the day. And Paul says there, those who get drunk, get drunk when? At night. I, I had a Christian friend a long time ago, a little older than me, uh, and he's gone to be with the Lord. He was a, before he was converted to Christ, he was a DJ uh, at these clubs in downtown Atlanta, and he often would talk about the darkness. And that just rang a bell with him because he saw that when the lights went down, 
what went on in the darkness at these clubs, the things about which Paul speaks in this very text. And we are children of light. We are to walk in the light. And the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. He's going to reveal those acts, those things that have been done in the dark, but also he's going to reveal what is in the depths of our hearts as well. And so what is the message here? Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is repentance. And the figure is taking off an old, dirty, uh, and sinful garment and putting on that which is clean and righteous. You know, repentance, uh, the word metanoia means to have a change of mind or change of heart. And it means that you have a new way of thinking about the world, about God, Christ, and your own personal actions, your own sin. Now you hate it. You see it as evil, and you turn from it, and you turn to God and start walking in obedience with Christ, and that's repentance, and as we've seen, the Christian life is a life of repentance, putting off and putting on, asking forgiveness, granting forgiveness when needed, and it's a fight. Note the imagery. He says, put on the armor of light. Many see this as obedience. That's what it, it is. And when he talks about the armor, perhaps he's alluding to the Roman armory, which was bright and shiny. It was to be seen, and men looked at it, were enamored by it. And so it should be when men see our good works, Jesus says they should give glory to God in heaven. Note the imagery here in verse 13, by the way. If there is ever a description of a bar, here it is in Scripture. Not that it has to be this, but some things never change. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Uh, he talks about walking. And he says, let us walk properly. What is he talking about when he says walk? He's talking about our behavior, how we live. Galatians 5, we are to walk in the Spirit. If we walk in in the spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So we talk about our Christian walk. He says, let us walk properly, that is decently, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. He says, as in the day. That's when the light shines. That's when there's no darkness. That's when we do good. And he says, not in revelry, that refers to the things they did in that culture, orgies, um, carousing, partying, not in lewdness and sexual excess and immorality. He says, not in lust. This is an evil desire, probably sexual desire. By the way, uh, human sexuality in the confines of God's design sexuality in the boundary of godly marriage 
It's a good thing. God created it, and we need not to shame people for it or, or give that impression that it's ugly and so forth to our children, parents. And yet, you need to remember, they're going to learn about it from someone. So think about that. And if you haven't, think about how you're going to talk about that and teach your children, as Genesis says, it was all very good. And yet people pervert things. They pervert that. The word pervert means to twist. They not only twist gender, gender bending, but there's also the act that's twisted and perverted as well. Then he talks about strife and envy, fighting, coveting, jealousy. I mean, you just think about the bar fight, fighting over a girl. Why? Because they've been promiscuous with this one or that one and all this stuff going on. And that was part of their culture. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. We don't have to go to the bar these days to, to see these things. It's, it's a problem. Talk about a pandemic. That's the real pandemic. Why are there so many abortions? We talk about that, and we should. But why are there? There's something that leads to that. Sexual immorality. Or selfishness, not wanting to take care of a young child that is a gift from God. And so these are not the ways of the Christian, the things he talks about here. We're to put these off. And he says we're to walk properly. And again, what does it mean to walk properly? Well, the Bible talks about our walk. It says we're to walk worthy of the calling we've received. Ephesians uh, 4.1, we're to walk no longer as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Ephesians 4.17, you know, sometimes we want to fit in, we want to be cool, we want to be relevant. And guess what? The world can't tell us apart from them. It means to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. But specifically, what does it look like? Remember in Luke chapter 1, there was Zacharias or Zacharias and his wife. Well, here's how the Bible describes them. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord and the Lord? To walk in a way that is pleasing to Him, that is decent, that is fitting, that is proper. It means to obey the commandments of the Lord. That's what it means. So this is the walk of the Christian. It's the life of repentance. How is your walk this morning, beloved? Are you walking the walk? Are you talking the talk and are you walking the walk? We talked about what it means to submit to civil authorities, what it means not to repay evil for evil, what it means to love your neighbor. That's the Christian walk. And by the way, we need power to do this, don't we? Can't do this in our own strength. Just as we need a steady, healthy diet to walk physically, we need a healthy, steady diet of the Word of God. Because in order to do this, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is the Holy Spirit that Jesus poured out from heaven after His ascension upon His church. And in Ephesians five sixteen, He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, 
and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so if we walk in the Spirit, with the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the desires of the flesh, that is to do those sinful desires to perform them. And then he says, if we live by the Spirit, if we've been given new life by the Holy Spirit, then why don't we walk according to that same Spirit? That's the point. And how do you do that? We've seen that. Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be filled with wine. Don't be full to the brim with beer or bourbon or whatever your drink is or drug. No, be full of the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and so forth and so Yes, we will, if we're filled with the Spirit, talk differently and walk differently and think differently in a way that pleases God. And it looks like this. So you're full of the Holy Spirit, meaning not that you're jumping around, falling down, rolling around, and all of that. It means you're full of the Word of God so that you begin to think God's thoughts from His Word. I remember another one of my friends he was a roofer for a time, and, and he talked about, you know, he'd, he'd bang your finger or thumb with the hammer, and he would curse even as a new Christian. He would still, you know, utter those words, and the guy he worked with became a pastor, so he was discipling him, and, and he would talk about how there came a time where he wouldn't say it. He wouldn't say the word when he hit his finger. But beyond that, he says, there was a time where I didn't even think, I didn't even think the word. That's progress. And the Spirit was using the word of God uh, to help him not do that, you know? Um, maybe you have a tendency, children, to disobey your parents, and so if you're full of the Word of God, you know, the Bible says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, and they say no desserts before dinner, and you want to go sneak one, and then you're full of the Word, and the Spirit br brings that verse to mind. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, all right, you're right, so I'm not going to do that. That's how it works. So you make progress and you walk the walk. And so how are we to live in light of eternity to come? We're to know the times. We're to walk the walk. And if we're going to walk the walk, we need to do what verse 14 says. And so that's the last thing. That is we must kill the flesh. Don't coddle it. Don't talk to it. Kill it. It's called mortification. In verse 14, he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. If you're familiar with the church father Aurelius Augustine, the North African who lived in the late uh, 300s, early 400s, you, you perhaps know the story of his conversion. Uh, he heard, I think it was uh, Tole Lege, pick up and read their children uh, near him. And he heard them say that. Well, Augustine, he had lived this life of licentiousness. He had fathered a child out of wedlock. His mother had prayed for his conversion for years. He became successful. He was a teacher, I think, in Milan, Italy. And uh, he'd even prayed at times. He said, Lord, make me holy, just not yet. And so he heard those words. And so what he did, he picked up the Bible. And he did what his friend did. He just opened up to a place in the Bible. You've ever done that? It's not the best way to read the Bible, but at least you're reading God's word, I guess. But 
that's not how it's intended to be used, but he went like that and opened up to Romans 13 and 14 and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And he was converted. And so he began a lifelong journey as a disciple of Christ. He wasn't perfect. He had some bad theology, just so you know. Early Augustine, later Augustine, we can talk about that. But that's what he did, and, and he was converted to the Lord Jesus. And, and so this, this verse, though, it's not intended to be used in that way. After all, this is a letter written to Christians, to the saints who were at Rome. And so this is to us who are converted, who are Christians now. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. What does he mean? To put on the Lord Jesus Christ means to be like Jesus Christ, to live as he lived. You might say, well, Kevin, that is um, that's a rather high standard. Well, of course it is. We're sinful. Jesus is not. Never was. Our sins were laid upon him, but he was never sinful. And yet, in 1 John 2, 6, it says, He who says he abides in him, Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. He's the standard. God's word, his commandments are the standard for our lives. Yes, we fall, we sin in thought, word, and deed. But 1 John one nine is a wonderful thing to remember, Christian. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's the gospel in light of this. We, we confess our sins to the living and true God. We confess our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are forgiven. But sin, in the Christian life even, sin is like Smeagol. It is like, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, it is like even the ring. You know, they're on that journey. They have a goal to reach, a destination. And uh, the two hobbits, they're <laughs> making their way through. And there's Smeagol. He appears out of nowhere. And he brings trouble. Or it's kind of like that, that ring itself. It's a battle. It's a burden. And it doesn't go away. So I love it when they get to the end. And uh, both Smeagol and the ring are put into the fire and destroyed. That's the way we treat sin. Poor Smeagol. But don't say poor sin. We hate sin. And uh, we are to put it to death. He says here, make no provision for the flesh. Don't take thought for it. Don't make room for it. You see, even in the Christian life sometimes we have pet sins that we like. Maybe that one. We just can't put it to death. And... And we coddle it, we, we put it away, we bring it back out, or, or we have besetting sins, you know, they're really deep-rooted and hard to get out, and the Bible says, kill it. Make no provision for it. How do you do that? Jesus taught us about this, didn't he? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do with it? Pluck it out. And not only that, Throw it far from you. If your hand causes you to sin, I think your right hand, cut it off and throw it far from you. Deal radically with your sin. Now, kids, don't go plucking out your eye. 
Jesus was using a figure of speech. And he means that sin is serious. It's an offense against God. And you're to deal radically and seriously with it. Not only putting your faith in Jesus and being forgiven of your sins, but in the daily life, fighting and battling against it, fleeing. And it takes faith to do this. Why? Because we're talking about eternity to come. We're talking about things that lie ahead and what God's word says in light of all that, these instructions here. We have to believe it in order to do it. We can't be like who? Lot's wife. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. In Luke chapter 17, remember that? What is, the, what is he talking about? In the Old Testament, there was Sodom and Gomorrah. They had twisted, perverted lifestyles, homosexuality and all that stuff. And there was a few of God's people in there. And, and God said to them through the angel, I'm going to destroy this place. And he says, you need to get out. You need to flee. Don't look back. How many times have you heard that expression? probably comes from that text of scripture don't look back and so they fled lot grabbed his wife they all they ran and then lot's wife stops turns around and she looks back why because that's where her heart was maybe she had a nice home maybe it was decorated nicely maybe her friends were there her friends that didn't share faith in the living and true god and she looked back, and immediately she was turned into a pillar of salt. You need to realize that this earth is going to burn. Your house is going to burn. Your money is going to be gone. The only heritage you will have is your Christian faith that you can leave to your children and your children's children. We live in prosperity and affluence, even under a Biden administration. You need to remember that. Don't look back. Well, Jesus says this in Luke 17, 32. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And so he says, that's, that's the moral of the story. You need to be willing to let this world go. Yeah, we labor. And we labor in such a way as to think about the prosperity and the victory of Christ's church, that he's building the church. Think about tomorrow. And at the same time, knowing there's a new heavens and new earth to come, a day of judgment. All of these things come in the resurrection. And so 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg of you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust." That war against the soul. You are in a battle. In a war. You're a pilgrim. You're traveling through. You're a sojourner. In this world. In this life. And remember. These things of the world. War against our souls. So Jesus is coming. He could come back. You know. I don't know when. Uh, he's going to come when he wants. It's up to him. So I need to live in light of that. But also. I could die this afternoon. I could die on my way home. I'll enter eternity. The same could be true of Jesus. And so how are you living your life right now? That's the question. And so how do we prepare for eternity? How do we live in light of this revelation of things to come? We know the time. We understand God's timetable, the big picture, the big things to come that we confess often in our creeds. Second coming, 
the resurrection of the dead bodily, the judgment day in the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state. We need to know, you need to understand that just as in the act of the first creation, when God delighted, when he divided the light from the darkness, so too will he at the new creation divide and separate the day from the night, the light from the darkness. And so you need to be found in the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, and be delivered, Colossians 1.12, from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. And you do that by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus. You walk the walk. Walk according to the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, being filled with the Word of God. Having that daily communion with the one whom it is that you walk. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. After all, we want to hear on that day, don't we? The words of our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, to be trusting in him, to be found in him at that day. Lord, even when we disbelieve, we confess at times our week is small, we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And we pray that you would help us to cling to Christ, that, that you, that he would never release his grip upon us, as is the promise. And Lord, help us to live daily in a way that pleases you, to walk with you, and to have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We pray in Christ's name, amen.